Here we are again, folks, with another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the effervescent city of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and alongside me, well, actually about a mile away from me is Troy Eller English. Say hello, Troy. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm just peachy keen. How are things with you? Oh, you know. <laughs> exactly. They're How's the fine. ice cream coming? How's ice cream coming? You're making ice cream, aren't you? Uh, let's see. We made a lavender Earl Grey ice cream. It was delicious. Oh, yeah, and we made a rhubarb strawberry ice cream with a caramel swirl and a sour cream custard. You guys are fancy. It 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 makes us sound far more fancy than we actually are. <laughs> You're gourmet in a five and dime store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, loyal listeners, this is a huge show, a big show, a really, really big show, because I finally got Troy on the other side of the microphone to talk a lot more than her intro stuff. Um, I got Troy to talk about Lucille Piet- Pietti. Is it Pietti? Lucille Pietti Milne. Hey. Um, She was an engineer who, um, actually a Wayne State graduate, was used for her good looks to sell cars rather than to work in the field that she got an education in. And she was also dubbed Chrysler's most beautiful engineer. So now over at GM currently, now this this is currently, Mary Barra uh, was made the first female CEO of a major automaker. And she climbed herself out from uh, being a mechanical engineer all the way to being CEO. I'm not saying climbed out a mechanical engineer. She just climbed the ladder very well. But even that is rare. Actually, women hold about 7.4% of the Fortune 500 CEO roles. So, but one good thing to look at this, though, is there are more women in engineering than ever before. Uh, There's somewhere between like uh, 15 to 17% make up, uh, women make up in, in, in the engineering field. Uh, that is way up from 5% in the 1980s. And there are some amazing women in, who are contributing to the field every day. And Troy will be telling us about a Wayne State engineering student from the 1940s who was used by Chrysler to sell pink cars rather than make them. So let's get to it. Um, yeah, all, all I can say, Dan, is buckle up, buttercup, because I have 14 pages of notes. <laughs> All right, before we start talking about Lucille Pietti, what was it like for women in the workforce professions, let's say from like the early 20th century to like the 1970s? Well, I'm actually going to go even earlier than that, Dan. Damn. (laughs) All right. So in the 1800s, like late 1800s and early 1900s, women's opportunity for university education were pretty limited. And especially if they wanted to, if they were interested in the sciences, things like chemistry and botany and astronomy, those were considered ladylike women could study that. And then engineering, which was the practical application of mathematics and science, that that was pretty much out of the question, right? Right. And then women's options were further limited by where they could study if they wanted to study science or engineering. Um, So women's colleges in the late 
1800s and the early 1900s offered limited coursework in the sciences and no engineering coursework. You know, with a few exceptions, the Ivy Leagues and the prestigious technical universities that were really known for their science and engineering programs often did not enroll women at all. And then if they did enroll women, they certainly didn't enroll them in their science and engineering courses. So what schools did they go to then? Well, the land-grant universities had a mission to provide education to the masses, right? So uh, women in the late 1800s were and the early 1900s were able to enroll in engineering courses and architecture at some of those land-grant universities, particularly Iowa State, University of Michigan, and dare I say it, the Ohio State University. You can say it. (laughs) Well, that's because you're not from Michigan. That's right. (laughs) And then also newer universities didn't have a history of excluding women. And, you know, they would occasionally produce a female engineering graduate here and there, like the University of Illinois, the University of Colorado, uh, UC Berkeley, Cornell, and then MIT admitted female special students in the late 1800s, but they didn't actually have a woman graduate with an engineering degree until the early 1900s. But, you know, being admitted was half the battle. So sometimes the math and science and engineering professors required women to sit in the back of the classroom, or the women would have to wait until all the male students had been seated before they could choose their seats. So they wanted the men to get the the, the close seats up front, the choice seats. Um, some of the universities limited the hours that women could study in the library or in the labs. Many of these universities uh, did not have sufficient housing for women, so they would have to uh, stay at a boarding house somewhere nearby. And then there was the problem of bathrooms, um, particularly in the buildings that had the science classrooms. Those buildings often did not have women's restrooms, or if they did have, they would have one for the secretaries to use. And so the, uh, the female students would have to either ask a secretary to use their restroom, or they would have to go to a completely different building. And this was a problem that extended into the 1950s and 1960s even. Well, I, I think Congress actually added a new women's bathroom in the Senate side just uh, in the past 10 years. So there so, you go. You know. <laughs> you know, there you go. Yeah, so um, to give you a sense of how many women were studying engineering, Elizabeth Bragg was the first woman in America to receive a bachelor's degree in engineering, uh, which she did in 1876 from UC Berkeley. And then from that point until 1900, there was, you know, a, a female engineering student graduating in the country every couple of years. And then from the turn of the century until the First World War, There were probably no more than two or three women getting an engineering degree in any given year in the entire country. And then between World War I and World War II, the number of women studying engineering slowly grew, but also universities tried to redirect them towards something else. So like Iowa State had been admitting women in engineering 
uh, for quite a while, but they did try to steer women toward home economics. You know, uh, the university believed that women needed an you know needed more technical understanding to run the modern home, and so they tried to steer these women with, you know, high aptitudes in math and science toward home economics instead of engineering. Um, yeah, and so then the women who did pursue engineering degrees from 1876 up until like the beginning of World War II, they were really seen as novelties. Um, and a lot of the news articles that were written about them would use words like invasion to describe, you know, their presence in the engineering classrooms. And, you know, as it did for many women in many fields, the Second World War really opened up a lot of options for women who wanted to be engineers um, because the country was facing a technical manpower shortage. All of, you know, all of the countries or many of the countries, engineers were, went, went off to war. So uh, the government and universities and corporations would create short engineering training programs for women with, a, with strong aptitudes in math and science to train them to be engineering aides and drafts women and things like that. And uh, Wayne University, now Wayne State, was one of them. Go Warriors. And so all these women were introduced to engineering and technical careers during the Second World War. But then when the war was over, they were expected to get back in the kitchen, right? Um, and so those who did stay on past the war often retired when they got married. And very few were allowed to actually stay in their jobs uh, when they became pregnant. They were not expected to work if they had young children at home. And so, you know, the result of all this is that by 1950, there were a lot more women working as engineers than prior to the war. Um, but that still only amounted to about one or two tenths of one percent of the engineers in America. And they usually had to choose between having an engineering career or a family life. They generally were not allowed to have both. Okay, then. Yeah, sounds like very similar to most women in all the workforces, um, from working in the factories to teachers. Um, a discrimination and a expectation of undervalue of what they actually can produce for the workforce. Doesn't surprise me at all what you just said. So, um, but we're talking about Lucille. And could you give us a setup of, um, I mean, who, who is Lucille um, Pietti? Uh, where was she born, raised, and uh, did she, where did she attend school? Yeah, so Lucille Pietti was born in Detroit in 1926 to Finnish parents. Uh, her father was born in the United States and he was a woodworker and a radio technician. And her mother was a Finnish immigrant who had been a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in Minnesota uh, before they got married. Uh, and then her mother had retired because, you know. <laughs> so Lucille's father opened a radio and appliance shop in Detroit when she was, when Lucille was in early elementary school. And she spent her childhood uh, reading and uh, dismantling appliances for fun. Uh, and then in 1944, Lucille graduated from Pershing High School, which is in Detroit's Northeast Side. She had planned on studying nursing, but an aptitude test and a school counselor steered her towards engineering instead. And that's really unusual for that time. 
That's really unusual. Well, aptitude tests, the career guidance tests and aptitude tests, often there would be a male version and a female version. And if a woman took both tests, the male version would say, hey, you should become an engineer. And if you took a, the female version, it would steer the women towards something else. Um, she had later told, uh, wrote in Parade Magazine, which was a magazine ins that was inserted into the local newspapers. Her parents were very skeptical of her decision to study engineering, uh, even after she graduated. <laughs> and then her English teacher in high school asked her why she wanted to build roads through the South American jungles. Oh, for Pete's sake. So dis despite uh, those negative comments, uh, Lucille enrolled at Wayne University in Detroit in 1944. It's now Wayne State University. And she enrolled in a six-year mechanical engineering cooperative program with Chrysler. So she spent alternating semesters in classes at the university and in co-op positions at Chrysler. Lucille was not the first woman engineering student at Wayne University. Um, Eleanor Beatty had earned a chemical engineering degree in 1928. And then there were five other freshman women who had enrolled in mechanical engineering at Wayne University in 1944. And then there were women enrolled in the other engineering disciplines as well. So there were some women in the College of Engineering. Um, but, you know, you definitely get the sense that they were viewed as novelties in the College of Engineering and just on campus in general. Uh, Lucille wrote in that parade article that uh, another female student who I assume was not studying engineering um, had asked her if it was just a different way to meet men, you know, since it was almost entirely men in the College of Engineering. The, uh, the engineering students produced a magazine called The Wayne Engineer, which I believe had a faculty advisor, but it was pretty much produced by the students. And the front of that magazine featured technical articles, and then the middle had articles about what was going on uh, in the College of Engineering. Um, and then there was usually a jokes page, and then the last page in the 1940s was written by a pseudonymous author called Joey, Joey Jr., uh, who shared quips and witticisms about, uh, about his classes and his classmates. And in 1944, when, uh, when Lucille enrolled, Joey was really interested in the sweaters that one particular female chemical engineering student wore. Oh, so, Lord. you know, and like in one issue, he wrote, he had observed that she had a two-week rotation of sweaters. And then in the later issues, he would make a note whenever she wore a new sweater. And, you know, and he identified her by name. So, you know, the women were definitely being looked at and they were being noticed, but, you know, not really for their academics. <laughs> no, no. And, and behind the joke page too. Yeah. Yes. And, and then the joke page... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know. Yeah, there, there were the joke pages and then Joey's Jr.'s column, you know, were, were full of misogynist jokes, some more so than others, um, and many of them not appropriate even for this podcast. Um, but one I, I will share is that uh, a pessimist thinks all women are immoral and optimists just hope so. <laughs> That's a clean one. That's fine. Yeah, that one's not too bad. There, there are a few others that I will, you know, share with you 
later. <laughs> that can be on the blooper reel, okay? <laughs> yeah. You know, and a few lines before that, before that joke was written, congratulations to Marge Miller, who is being married this month. Marge was in the College of Engineering until last week when she proudly flashed a drop slip and a beautiful diamond ring. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah. There was an expectation that the women were going to find a husband and get married and leave. Um, and this was an expectation of like professors and bosses into the 1960s, sometimes into the 1970s. So this was not unusual at all. Also, um, Joey Jr. wrote, the Chronicle has taken a new lease on life with a gigantic assortment of pinup girls and the latest gags hot off the blast furnace. I assume by gags, he means uh, jokes pages. Um, hope to see many engineers down there in the coming weeks. Mr. Sergeant, prominent faculty member, has commended the plan. So, you know, all the male engineering students were circulating pinup posters, you know, of and I wonder what these joke pages were that they couldn't be printed in this magazine, having but, seen yeah. the jokes that were printed in the magazine. And, and the faculty were aware of it, apparently. Sanctioned by faculty. Lovely. It gets yeah. even better. And, and again, uh, this, is not on, this is not limited to Wayne University. Uh, you, you see this at many or most of the universities. Oh, absolutely. It goes on until the 70s. You're right. Yeah. All that kind yeah. of act. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you definitely get the sense that they viewed these women as eye candy. They didn't take them seriously. Um, so that was the environment around Lucille at the university. Meanwhile, every other semester, she's at Chrysler, right? doing her co-op. So, you know, her first co-op rotation, uh, she was during World War II, and she was uh, making parts for anti-aircraft guns in the in Chrysler's machine shop. And uh, the guys gave her a rough time at first, apparently. So they painted her drill press pink. They sprayed her with water uh, from like a, a coolant tank. And then they screwed her lunchbox to the workbench. So a little bit of hazing there, but you know, eventually the novelty wore off. Okay. Um, and then back at Wayne University, she was really active. So she was involved in the university's engineering society, uh, the student chapter of the Society of Automotive Engineers. She was in ski club. She was in American Youth Hostelers, university chorus and acapella choir. And then she also enjoyed tennis and of course since it's Wayne State uh, fencing because that's of course. what we were known for particularly at that time. So the student body uh, at that time elected a Miss Wayne University each spring and the candidates had to be seniors and they were rated on their attractiveness and personality and so this is where I should mention that Lucille was fresh-faced and beautiful. And that really plays a key role in the rest of her story. So she was nominated by one of the fraternities on campus. And then the final field of five contestants had been winnowed down by some male professors. So that's not creepy at all. <laughs> and then 
announcing the finalists, the university's student newspaper, which was called the Detroit Collegian at that time, it described the final candidates as five specimens of feminine pulchritude. Pulchritude. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, which means beauty, and I understand why we don't use it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like pulchritude is not a beautiful word. <laughs> no, it's a it's an ugly word. No offense mm. to whoever came up with it, but ugly yes. word and it doesn't line up with what we're thinking. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, Lucille Pieri, she was elected Miss Wayne University in, on March sixteenth, nineteen fifty, and in announcing her victory, the Detroit Collegian also announced her weight and height. Uh, because, you know, there's no privacy there. <laughs> mm. And then the, uh, her official duties were to serve as the hostess of the senior convocation. And then she was crowned at the senior ball, which was held at the Fort Wayne Hotel in Detroit. When Lucille first enrolled at Wayne University in 1944, she was, was one of six female freshmen studying mechanical engineering. And then there were other women studying other engineering disciplines at the university. When she graduated in 1950, in June 1950, she was the only woman to graduate out of 300 in engineering. Okay, then. In that Parade Magazine article that was published in 1954, the headline was titled, There I Was All Alone with 300 Men. Hmm. So when she graduated with the degree, uh, where did she go to work? And what was her job? Did she go to Chrysler? Did she go somewhere else? Yeah, so Chrysler did offer her an entry-level engineering position, but the salary was less than what she was making as a co-op machinist. So she turned that down. Um, instead, the dean of engineering at Wayne University had been approached by someone at Ward's Automotive Reports, which was a publication, um, asking for recommendations for a technical writing position that they had open. And the Dean of Engineering only recommended one person, and that was Lucille. And, you know, possibly it was because she was a good writer, but possibly it was because, you know, she was a woman and the dean felt like, well, you know, she can do that. She won't get a job anywhere else, but she could do that. <laughs> so we don't know. We don't know, but it's a little suspicious. <laughs> um, and then, so the dean recommended her, but then the boss at Ward's Automotive Reports was not excited to hire her. So in that Parade Magazine article, Lucille said, the toughest part was convincing him to see me and then to give me the job. The rest of the work was nothing that any woman couldn't handle as easily as a man. So in that position, she was uh, interviewing industry, automotive industry types, and um, writing articles. Um, during this time, she lived at the Zeta Kappa Psi sorority house. Uh, which was located at 825 Chicago Boulevard, which is in Detroit's Boston Edison neighborhood. Uh, she lived with 11 other career girls, and the, they called the house Man Trap Manor, which <laughs> amuses me to no end. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Lucille, her work at Ward's, you know, gained her some attention, 
And so Chrysler offered her another job in 1952. And this time it was in the, it was a technical writing position in the engineering divisions, technical information section. And there was at least one other woman engineer at Chrysler uh, at this time, Virginia Sink, who was hired by Chrysler as a chemical engineer in 1936. Um, and she established Chrysler's spectrographic laboratory. And she was America's first female automotive engineer. Um, and Virginia Sink was, she became a renowned researcher on automobile air pollution. Um, she helped develop the predecessor to the catalytic converter. And she was at Chrysler until like 1978 or 1979. And she was really well respected. So she was doing the actual, all right, I hate to say this, the real engineer work. Yes, not she being was. The not being the invisible worker, not being pushed over to write technical reports or anything like that. She was actually doing it. That's rare. Yes. Yes. Because, I mean, like, that was, you know, very technical engineering position. Um, and for her to be hired in 1936 was impressive. Um, but by the 1950s, uh, Virginia Sink, you know, she was several decades older than Pietti, uh, than Lucille. Uh, she was kind of hardened, you know, mm -hmm, sure. whereas uh, Lucille was, you know, young and beautiful and, and perhaps slightly less hardened to the working atmosphere. Lucille, so as a technical writer at Chrysler, she wrote press releases and promotional materials, and then she spent a lot of time answering customers' letters. Uh, customers would write asking for more technical information on their cars or to help troubleshoot issues with their cars. And so a lot of her job was writing these letters um, and helping customers uh, better understand how their cars worked. Um, she told one reporter, I prepare articles that are supposed to be intelligible to the layman. After going to college for years and learning dollar and quarter mile long technical words, I now translate them into one syllable, 10 cent words. <laughs> That's a nice <laughs> quote. I like that. Yeah. Management noticed that she was really good at explaining the technical workings of, of automobiles, but she was also young and pretty too. <laughs> so uh, Lucille's bosses asked her to travel half the year with the company's New Worlds in Motion tour, which was a traveling auto and technology show with 100 exhibits. You know, so she joined this tour in January of 1953, and she wrote, lecture, she wrote and gave lectures to reporters and to the general public on the technical aspects of Chrysler's line of vehicles that were on display. She was uh, providing lectures on sound control and frame construction, suspension system design, powder metallurgy, braking systems, and so on. And then the reporters and the public, they would quiz her uh, trying to, you know, figure out if she actually understood what she was talking about or if she was just, you know, reciting something from memory. And she did, of course, understand what she was talking about. Uh, there's a, a funny article in the Brooklyn Eagle uh, when, the, when the tour traveled to, uh, to Brooklyn. The headline is, Technical Questions on Motors Don't Stump Chrysler's Lady Engineer. And it says, men guess outnumbered women 10 to 1, and they eyed the young lady engineer with a combination of pleasure and suspicion. 
one automotive writer, with just a hint of a superior smirk, decided to test the lady's know-how. Do you think that motors are going to be less in weight and more in power? He asked. That didn't phase the pretty engineer a bit. That seems to be the trend, she said without batting an eyelash. They're using a shorter block. Other technical questions followed, but Lucille held her own. The men were convinced and gallantly turned to more personal questions. How did such a pretty girl get to be an engineer? Uh, you know, these reporters and guys, just members of the public, you know, they would occasionally resort to sexual innuendos. So someone asked her, how do you lubricate the universal joint on a 1932 Plymouth? Which uh, was not the car sitting in front of him, right? So... In 1953, all these articles are being written about her, and, you know, she became this kind of a sensation, or some might call her a circus sideshow. Um, before this uh, auto show arrived in, in a city, Chrysler replaced advertisements in the, in the local newspapers, and, you know, in reference to the TV show I Love Lucy, the ads would, would promise that you'll love our Lucy. Um, right. And people did love Lucille Ball, but she was not portrayed as being competent. Uh, so that's yeah. not, you know, the nicest comparison. And then in July of 1953, uh, uh, Lucille Pietti was featured on the cover of Cars magazine as Chrysler's most beautiful engineer. And she's wearing, uh, you know, a nice professional skirt suit. But then you open up the magazine and she's, you know, like sitting on a car in a swimming suit, right? <laughs> <sighs> um, yeah. And the caption read, Lucille in a bathing suit is an excellent advertisement for Chrysler's renowned body styling. The ladies uh. long on gray matter, too. And, you know, she took all this attention in stride, at least outwardly with, you know, with good humor. So she traveled with this auto show three weeks out of every month, and she estimated that she flew 70,000 miles in 1953. And then uh, she applied for membership in the Detroit section of the Society of Women Engineers. I assume that, you know, section members saw these articles and reached out to her. And then whenever the show took her to a city with a Society of Women Engineers section, um, the members would invite her for tea, and she would sometimes give a technical presentation to them. And then in between shows, she would return to Chrysler as a technical writer. You know, she traveled with that auto show for a year, and then Chrysler sent her to Hollywood for a new assignment in 1954. The Plymouth division of Chrysler was sponsoring a sitcom on CBS called That's My Boy, uh, Plymouth was the only commercial that you would see during the show. In these commercials, Lucille would discuss the technical specs on the on Plymouth's line of cars. Um, however, like during the New Worlds in Motion tour, she had written all of her own technical talks. And these commercials, they appear to have been scripted by someone else. And then the presentations that she was giving in the meantime, we're becoming more stereotypically gendered instead of uh, speaking about like noise control uh, or metallurgy. She was presenting on color inside and out from the woman's viewpoint, uh, which was a presentation she gave for the American Society of Body Engineers. 
Uh, so she was getting further and further away from the technical side of her job. And then the TV show was canceled at the end of 1954. And she, she was offered a lot of screen tests from movie and television studios. Um, but she turned them down because she really wanted to be an engineer. And she told a reporter, I'm just the slide rule type. Without the micrometers and the calipers and the tools of my trade, I'd be a pretty lost girl. Oh. Yeah. So she returned to Detroit uh, January of 1955. And Chrysler wasn't really sure to do with her. <laughs> so she suggested that she could collect information and write reports and lectures on automobile safety features. But instead, they decided to make her the spokeswoman for the Dodge La Femme, uh, which was supposedly the first car that was designed specifically for women. It was, uh, I will say, Pepto-Bismol pink and oh. white. <laughs> and when she presented the car at shows, uh, she gave a speech that was certainly not scripted by her. Um, she didn't really talk about the technical aspects of the car at all. She, she would talk about the feminine virtues of the car. Like it had a storage compartment in the back of the driver's seat uh, that could store the driver's coordinating ring gear, right? There was like a pink umbrella and there, I think there was like a raincoat. <laughs> of course, everything's matching and convenient, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So she asked for a raise in March of 1955 because she had been earning the same salary, uh, the same engineering division salary, even though she had been traveling all over the country all the time. And in April, the company agreed to pay her overtime wherever appropriate, according to the engineering department standards, and then also the minimum rates for promotional work as governed by the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists or, and the Screen Actors Guild union contracts. However, at that point, Chrysler stopped using her in advertising. That's so, cruel. This is cruel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they did send Lucille and Virginia Sink, who we've already met as the first woman automotive engineer. They did send her, uh, send them together on a few lectures. Like, and you know, both were members of the Detroit section of the Society of Women Engineers. And then they presented at a joint dinner of SWE Detroit and the Engineering Society of Detroit. And so this presentation, it was billed as sponsored by Chrysler and it was focused on automotive colors and the psychology of car colors. Um, mm -hmm. And Lucille had been sort of shoehorned into this, into this territory, you know, <laughs> by this time. But I, I really don't understand how Virginia Sink got roped into this because she was, you know, at this time, particularly, she was focused on, you know, like air pollution. So I, I'm not sure how she got roped into this. Um, right. and, but it wasn't just this one thing, right? Like they did other presentations that were similar at other events. And they, they did a, a radio program, <laughs> like they, oh, they were okay. guests on a radio program on this topic. Um, and so then when they weren't doing these lectures, uh, Lucille would go back, back to, you know, the office and she would, in her role as a technical writer. And then by, by middle of 1955, uh, she, she was 
she was fed up. She was not amused. Uh, and then she got a better offer. She, uh, her childhood friend, Jim Milne, uh, proposed to her. Oh. Um, and so she resigned in September 1955. They had kept up correspondence, you know, this whole time. And then he, when she was in Hollywood, he had actually come out to, to see her, to visit her. But he had to make himself scarce because of a morality clause that was in her contract. Of course. Um, and so, you know, I think we can read several reasons into why she quit. Um, so her husband, Jim, was, he was a petroleum engineer, and he worked for a company uh, called Aramco, which was in, uh, located in Abqaiq, Saudi Arabia. And in the 1950s, you know, the very strong assumption would be that the wife would follow the husband wherever his job took him, you know, even if she had a career of her own. Mm -hmm. So it would be assumed that she would have quit her job. But, you know, at the same time, there wasn't really much to keep her at Chrysler. You know, she had been pigeonholed into this role of a booth babe. Um, until she asked for more money. Uh, and then the you know ideas that she had pitched to focus her work on safety issues had been vetoed in favor of you know shilling pink cars with right, matching right. umbrellas, right? So it was time to go. They weren't fully utilizing her skills. Following their honeymoon, um, Lucille Pietti Milne, now is her name, uh, and her husband Jim, they moved to Saudi Arabia, and she was hired very briefly as a drilling engineer. Uh, her job involved rewriting the other engineers' field notes into usable reports, mm -hmm. and then she also studied the feasibility of converting oil rig diesel engines into gasoline engines. And she was very excited about this job. She wrote back home that she considered it to be her first engineering position, um, even though at this point she had been working for 12 years, you know, if you include her co-op. She had to leave the position uh, a few months later in 1956 when she announced that she was pregnant, uh, which was, you know, standard for the time. And she wrote the birth announcement for her son, which read, the Milne Corporation is proud to announce the introduction of a brand new model. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely an American design, even though it embodies several foreign model features. And then the announcement was signed, James R. Milne, President and Executive Engineer, Lucille P. Milne, Treasure and Production Engineer. That's hilarious. I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so she was primarily a housewife for the next two decades. Uh, she raised three children, although she did work part-time writing for the company newspaper. Um, but she did get to return to engineering in 1977 when her children were older. Aramco hired her as a petroleum engineer, uh, and she was estimating crude oil supplies and production needs. Um, but she and her husband retired in 1983. They moved to the Palm Beach, Florida area. And then Lucille passed away in 2011. But she did get a brief chance to be an engineer. It's it, at the end of her career. End yeah. of her career, yeah, she was actually doing the real engineering work that yeah. she enjoyed. Right. Um, so wow. that was depressing. <laughs> It is kind of, but she was able to finally do what she loved to do at the ends. But yeah. what she did was, do you think, all right, it's kind of depressing in a way, but do you think that she, because she was a threat to 
the male society that they, they didn't want to accept her or patronized her, you know? You know, this was not unusual at the time, except for the fact that, you know, she ended up on TV. That was the unique part, but it was not unusual yes. at all. The women were treated this way at all. Right. Yes. No, not in the 19, early 1950s. It wasn't universal. I will say Ford, you know, just down the road, Ford had a lot of women engineers or engineering aides, but nationally, this was not too surprising. And Chrysler, like they had this great model of Virginia Sink, who was really Mm -hmm. well respected and was doing very important research. Like they sent her to Los Angeles to study the, the smog problem. And to figure out how to how to fix the smog problem because of all these cars. But I think they fell into the trap of Lucille being young and pretty. Uh, and then Virginia Sink started in the 1930s before the war. She had the, you know, she had established this reputation. And and the time when Lucille started working it was in the 1950s when you know they wanted all the women back in the kitchen and so I think they just sort of fell into this trap when it could have gone very differently but they noticed that she was pretty and they just really focused on that (laughs) um okay Troy you gave us a huge amount of information here thank you so much but if I was a researcher where might I find information about Lucille yeah uh, so first, uh, I want to thank Edward Malone, who published a, a great article in uh, Technical Communication Quarterly, uh, which is a, a journal on technical communication. The article is called Chrysler's Most Beautiful Engineer, Lucille J. Pietti in the Pillory of Fame. Um, so that was a great resource. He actually, he contacted the Milne fam- family. He saw her scrapbooks. Um, he talked to her husband. That's a great article. But um, otherwise, you can find out about her experience at Wayne State uh, in the Detroit Collegian newspapers and the Wayne Engineer magazine. Um, you can see her in the 1950 yearbook. All of those are available at the Ruther Library. And then also uh, you can find out a little more about her career in the Society of Women Engineers records, the Society of Women Engineers Detroit records, and the Society of Women Engineers publications. Um, And then just some some great background information. Uh, You can read in Margaret Rossiter's three-volume series, American Women in Science. And then uh, there's also... Uh, another fairly recent book called Girls Coming to Tech, A History of American Engineering Education for Women. It's by Amy Bix, and she did research in the SWE collections here at the Ruther. Very cool. So anybody wants to learn more, one-stop shopping at the Ruther Library as usual. Hey, Troy, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Tales from 
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. How's that? All right, let's see what happens. Ready? Oh, I I wait with bated breath. (laughs) So do I now. So do I. Oh, oh, okay. It's it's now time for me to ask a question, huh? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. I'll I'll let you ask a question now. Thank thank you very much, Troy. Chilling pink 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 Cadillacs. Not Cadillacs. The wrong company. Uh, like the Mary Kay. <laughs> uh, exactly. The Mary Kay. Pink but we, can, we can use the Bruce Springsteen. Is that Bruce Springsteen or is that uh, John Mellon Cougar? And then also, as a special feature, a song had been written for Miss Wayne Yu by William Hump Jones Sr., and it will be sung to her at the dance. So I'm sure that was delightfully awkward. <laughs> <laughs> really awkward. Okay.